You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we look to make space for the spirit. I'm Phil, and today I am joined by Dan White. Now, Dan has done a lot of different things, but he is most recently the author of the book Love Over Fear. And this book just grabbed my attention the minute I saw it because I think it's one of the most important topics, and then therefore, the way Dan approaches it, one of the most important books for our culture and our time today. And so in this interview, we dive into the book, we look at the root of fear, what the what fear is, the ramifications of fear, and then Dan shares from his own story, some of his stories of fear and practices that he's used to overcome fear. And so this episode is just full of all kinds of stuff from false identity that cause divisions to our true identity in God to the importance of naming things and what it looks like to truly approach the other in a creative way that disrupts and invites something new rather than just the old wars that we have going on. Ultimately, Dan teaches us how perfect love casts out fear. And so you're going to get everything from the scientific, psychological to extremely applicable practices, no matter who you are or what you're going through. So I just love how this episode turned out. Dan was a really superb guest, and I know you will definitely come away from this discussion challenged, encouraged, blessed, and prepared to tackle your own fears so that love may reign through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode, my interview with Dan White. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the Rispace podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, Phil. I, I've loved your book. It uh, immediately spoke to me, partly because of my own experience, which some listeners know about, some don't. But just this idea of love over fear and how um, fear-driven our world has become. So yeah. I think what I'd love to do is we'll talk some about fear, then talk about some practices for overcoming mm. fear in our world. But uh, maybe you can just kick off with why Why did this stick out to you? What is, what is the role fear has played in your life? And... Um, how have you seen it in the world and the ramifications of it, I guess? Oh, that's a big question. It is huge. <laughs> um, well, I'll start with what I observed uh, around me and then move maybe to, to my own self-awareness. But um, in my local church uh, quite a few years ago, um, I share this in the book, but it, it's really what sparked the the curiosity and then really the rapid pursuit of understanding what was going on was um, I had a uh, a dear woman who I loved come to me after church on a Sunday and say that she had to leave our church. Uh, she did not feel comfortable here. She was a conservative and felt like she could not be herself and was uh, shamed for being a conservative and couldn't be around progressives. And, and I pleaded with her to stay, and she just said, I, I can't. And uh, that, you know, that rattled me. Because um, I really loved her and valued her voice in our church. And then fast forward two weeks, and I had a couple come to me after church on a Sunday again. 
and say the same thing uh, with the same intensity from the opposite perspective. They said, we have to leave uh, this church because there are conservatives here that are complicit with injustice, and we don't feel like we can uh, stay here. Um, and I pleaded with them to stay at the table so we could talk, and um, it wasn't enough for them, and they left. So that that really was a disruption in my life, and um, I didn't really know. I thought maybe the best way to, to kind of deal with that was to pacify them or plead with them or um, none of those things worked. And it really set me on this search for why could people who disagreed not stay in the same room with each other. And that led me towards kind of all kinds of places. And eventually I really landed on that there was this deep subconscious and sometimes conscious furious force called fear that was compelling both of them to you know choose extreme actions and to be to be repelled by each other and in that exploration i uh of realizing that fear was at the root of this um i realized how much fear was in my own life so in trying to (laughs) approach this as like a journalist or a researcher, um, because I really wanted to have a disciple, a way to disciple people out of separation and out of categorizing each other and out of uh, seeing each other as, I use this language in the book, as monsters um, for what the differences they had. So that's why I had to find out what the spiritual root was, and this is where he landed into that text, that perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with, pun- with punishment, you know, and and I, I really think that that was the that's the climax of the war that's happening in the crux of every human heart, no, um, yeah. and that reflected in my own life. <laughs> and as I started to audit uh, my own responses to people and affiliations with people and uh, knee-jerk reactions to people, I realized this wasn't just a difference of opinion that was making me do this. It was actually I was afraid and. Um, so anyhow, that's that's what started started that uh, the whole movement. And I think for a lot of people, whether or not that story matches exactly with their story at a church, sure. for example, I think everyone can sort of experience that, whether it be at work or yeah. at, uh, you know, we recently had Thanksgiving here in the United States and Christmas right. is coming. So around the family table, you know, yes. the, the division starts, the... Throwing the turkey, you know, these types of things. Um, In our politics, we see that if you're different than me, then I have to separate from you or I have to attack, which I know in the book you called attack or avoid, right? The two responses. And so where for you kind of then what did you discover? What is at the root of the fact that in our world we are so separated? And if you're different, I can't be with you. Yeah. So this this gets into some kind of anthropology, but we are very tribal people. And when I say tribal, we're very – we find our identity from the groups that we belong to. And so for me to move in affection – and that's the language I use in the book – affection towards someone I disagree with or I find you know, repelling or uh, – disgusting or frustrating to move towards them with affection actually calls my identity into question because I am now associating or being seen as potentially agreeing with you or liking you or, um, and, and because 
our our really our our minds and our society is very tribal. We just find the group we belong to. I mean, this goes back to adolescence. You probably remember this if you went to public school or any kind of school. How much anxiety and panic is around who you belong to? And this is just working out itself on a national scale, but it works out in our relationships is that to move towards someone that I disagree with is to call into my into question my identity. Um, where am I finding my sense of satisfaction, worth, being seen for who I want to be seen as? And um, I, you know, I share this in in a book in my a story in my in the book about my ne- next door neighbor, and this one has nothing to do with politics, uh, but it was I, you know, I was walking across the street and I hadn't met my neighbor yet, and I saw that he was cussing up a storm. He was working on a car. He's a grease monkey, and uh, I just, you know, seeing him work on his cart, and I thought, right away, I thought, I have nothing in common with this guy. Now, I didn't say that overtly. I just (laughs) felt we're different. I wouldn't even know how to connect with him. And so I avoided, and I went into the house, and I told my wife, there's a jerk across the street. That that quick judgment from me, I sized up who he was from a distance, partly because I didn't think I could identify with him because that's not who I was. These things move really fast in our neurons, and part of transformation, or maybe one of the steps of transformation, is beginning to um, be mindful and capture. I mean, Paul says to take our minds captive to these quick, responsive, reactive feelings we have towards people that are unlike us. No question. And and, and I think you started to get to some of the ramifications of this fear when yeah. it says, well, now I'm not even going to go get to know that guy. But now yeah. you're also skeptical of him. So in, in, in this kind of interactions, what do you see as some of the other ramifications of saying you're different than me? And so therefore, I must attack your viewpoint or I must separate from you when we allow yeah. sort of those snap judgments to take over. What does that yeah. kind of lead to? What, what is the problem with fear? Well, as a Jesus follower, uh, the primary implication is that I no longer treat those who are created in the image of God as image bearers. And this is probably the, 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 the one of the core theological truths in the entire scriptures is that we are made in the image of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it, it communicates inherent, unsurpassable worth that God is ascribing to us. When I start to act in fear, I am breaking down that primary um, way of seeing the other. Um, and this is this is where I see, you know, the, the schema or, or the, the pendulum between the image of God and the monster is that the less we see people for their inherent beauty and value and belovedness in the way the Father, Son, and Spirit sees that person, the more we start seeing them as a monster and... Now, that's ex- exaggerated language, monster, but we can all connect with it a little bit because of our childhood of being afraid of monsters under the bed, mm-hmm. how we start to ruminate on something, and and suddenly we are convinced without a doubt that there's a monster trying to eat us, but it's not really there. And this is what we do with people. We start to ruminate. We start to see things that aren't there. We start to exaggerate features of who they are to the point where we no longer see the image of God. We see a monster. And... I think that's the thing I'm most concerned about is Jesus followers living and moving and breathing in the world, if they don't see the other as the way the God sees others, 
um, then we're no longer following Jesus. And we are really breaking, um, in some sense, breaking the connection between us and God, because this is, not only has God come to show us what God looks like in Jesus, he's come to show us how to see people. And this is the primary uh, edge of witness and mission and uh, friendship. So I don't know if that helps a little bit. No, of course. Well, and I think I, I like you said we then label them as a monster. And when I think we when we label someone in that way, then it doesn't matter what we do to them or what's happening yeah. to them because yes. they deserve it or we justify yes. it or right. we think this is what I have to do. Right. Yeah. Or in order for me to stand for the truth, I couldn't be with them or I'm compromising or as yes. you say in the book, I'm giving in to an oppressor or something. Yeah. So we allow all that fear. So so what would you sort of say then to someone who says, well, I don't want to sort of enter into a deeper relationship with someone there in that way, because what they're doing is wrong. And if I were in some way to love them, it would seem like I am affirming what they're doing. Right. Yeah, I get that question quite a bit. That seems to be the the cutting edge of fear, right, is uh, not wanting to affirm somebody that you disagree with. just just an anecdote in in um i was i've been able to do a little bit of a love over fear tour and 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 travel and um i've been trying to get some data on how people are feeling about their enemies and for conservatives if you ascribe as a conservative moving towards someone you see as a political enemy or and not even a political enemy anybody that you feel opposed to to move towards them with affection feels like compromising moral compromise for progressives to move to, if you're progressive leaning and to move towards someone that you feel is your political enemy or not just political enemy, it feels like complicity. And so round and round we go, we never actually move towards one another. For this issue of feeling like you're affirming injustice or forming immorality or unholiness or heretical truth or whatever <laughs> you feel like you're compromising to move, you just have to look at Jesus. Uh, Friends, I mean, Jesus' associations with with people um, went so far, so far that people actually perceived him as a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> he wasn't a glutton and a drunkard. He was perceived as one, so much so that that became his un, uh, known identity amongst groups of people. And so, this idea of being seen as affirming is really more the uh, the lack of rootedness we have in our belonging to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus did not give a rip. Uh, I don't mean to get, get harsh <laughs> there, but he didn't really give a rip of what people, how people perceived him, because he knew how the Father saw him, mm-hmm. and this this permitted him to move towards enemies, because his identity was not in question. It was already sure. It was, and this is why he had to repeatedly go up on the mountain and find quiet space, in order to recalibrate his beloved that he was beloved. Um, and this is why, right now, cross political or cross difference movement towards people we hate or disgust is so hard because our identity is not rooted in the Father, Son, and Spirit. I love that because, you know, Jesus, of course, is spending time with Samaritans, with women of questionable character, right, of tax collectors, Pharisees. I love in the book, for example, how you lay out how the disciples were from all these separate political and religious spheres, and he puts them all together. 
And so it seems to me what you're saying, and I know you sort of, you go into this in the book, is categorization where we say yeah. because you think different, you are inherently different is not from God, but right. from Satan. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a new discovery for me, actually, is that the, what's happening between us isn't just sociological. Um, it's actually a power and principality. Um, and that's what how Paul explains this, is that the enemy is actually polarizing us against one another. And the enemy categorizes. Um, the, the, the word used in scripture is the accuser, but the Greek for that is kategor, which is where we get the word category in English. And so to the enemy's work is to actually convince us to categorize each other. The categorizer. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, yeah, that's what I call in the book, the categorizer. And the moment we start categorizing, the next move is now to move towards judgment and then to move towards separation. And, uh, these, the, I mean, these small moves are violent on our ability to do what Jesus asked us to do, which is instead of hating your enemies, I am telling you to love your enemies. It becomes, it feels so impossible because we've given so much space to this categorization, justifying it, doing mental and emotional gymnastics. You, you were talking about you know, making excuses for why someone is the way they are. And so, yeah. So and then and then of course God blows up categories in Jesus and says, yeah. you know, you want to say that this person is uh, Jewish or Gentile, this person is clean or unclean. Well, right. the, I don't know about what bigger divide there could be than God and creation. Yeah. And God's like, let me show you, you know, you know, hold hold my drink, right? Let, let me yes. show you what it looks yes. like to cross over. Um, yeah. And so that's sort of that crossing the void you talk about, right? As, as one of the first steps of uh, kenosis. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of sort of the, I love the holiness of descent, as you call it. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I mean, that part of the book was um, very personal and in some ways painful for me to write because I, the the people in my life that had become enemies and we've all got enemies and they weren't even necessarily political for me. They were just people who had either hurt me or offended me. The void between us, um, the gap, the, the space that starts to get created often gets created because of silence and because of, um, you know, you probably had this experience when you're waking up at night and you're ruminating on everything they said, and then you're ruminating on how you would combat them if you ever had the chance with your, you know, with your perfect words against their stupid words. You know how we do this, and this void gets created, and and I realized how much distance had been created between me and these people that I disagreed with and felt hurt by and, and really injured by. And the only way to cross a void um, – as, as Jesus did to move towards us, is to self-empty. Mm. And this is classic Philippians chapter 2, which says that he emptied himself, became like us, and that that was the actual mechanism for God being able to cross the void towards us. He could not bring all his omniscience, all his omnipresence, all his glory towards us to get to us. We could not. It was almost like a backpack that he had to take off in order to get tangibly near to us so that we could actually observe the kindness of God. And so for me, kenosis is the self-emptying that I had to do um, to move towards my enemies. This is what Jonah goes through, <laughs> and he <laughs> fights it tooth and nail. Um, I mean, there's there's inner torture and torment in having to 
learn to let go and self-empty of your rights, of your arguments, of your need to be seen the way you want to be seen in order to move towards someone with kindness or affection. Um, so kenosis is a very, I mean, it's not, a, it's a very personal process. You can't force it on anybody. You can't make an entire community move towards kenosis because it, it, it slams up against, for me, it's slammed up against my, um, my bitterness and the grudges that I wanted to hold on to. And they're all different for different, for different people. Well, yeah, because we want to say, well, I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat or I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican. If we're going to talk, you need to come over here. Right. Or um, Christian, Muslim, Israel, Palestine, uh, North, South, white, black, whatever it could be. And it sounds like then kenosis is saying, I'm going to actually, and again, to hear the whole line here, so not to extrapolate, but to say, I'm going to in some way self-empty a little bit of Mm -hmm. my claiming this is my identity and your identity must become mine. I'm going to self-empty a little bit of my Republicanness or Democratness to move toward you to make a third space where our ultimate identity, and this is what you said at the beginning of our discussion, that like Jesus, ultimate identity was in the Father. So he could Mm -hmm. self-empty of anything else and not lose himself. So that's why I was saying be careful to say we're not calling you to lose your self-identity, but to maybe lose the false identities that Satan right puts out there as false categories of, no, this is who you are, this is who they are, and there's no thing. And it's like, wait a minute, maybe those don't actually exist. Yes, I love that. The the emphasis you're putting there on these on false identities is 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 where people find uh, the there's a blur and there's they have made pseudo identities in some way their true identity although it's not and so to strip those down and to let those go in order to move towards your enemy is is necessary. That's so good, man. I, I love that. So. It, we'll, we'll get a little personal here if you're open to that. Sure. What, what do you fear today? Um, well, so for my own um, personality type, I don't know how many of your listeners are into the Enneagram. Seems oh, like yeah. We're, we're, it's growing for sure. Sure. I'm a five on the Enneagram. And what that just means for me is that I'm I'm afraid of people taking – from me. Um, I have a real, I write about this in the book, I have a real real sense of scarcity that I only have so much to give, I only have so much energy, I have only so much to offer, and every person I perceive is a possible taker. Hmm. And um, in, in because of the way that I view people that way, I move towards hunkering down and hiding and um, hoarding. Mm. Um, so my my constant work as a disciple is to not believe the lie that I am uh, that I have to live in a scarcity that I don't have enough. Um, this is a movement towards abundance for me. Is believing that God will take care of me. So. I have to do a lot of, um, I have quite a few practices actually that help me identify when I'm in scarcity. Um, so, I mean, it can be, as, I can be, it can be triggered as simply as someone saying, hey, Dan, do you want to get a cup of coffee? And I 
my fear, my amygdala, which I talk about in the book, that part of my brain goes towards the flight or uh, fight, right? The flight, yeah, attack or avoid. Okay. Um, you want to hurt me? You want a cup of coffee because you want to attack me with something? Or uh, you want to take from me, so I'm going to avoid you. And that's my, that's my, that's really the uh, the precipice that I'm on uh, working through. So. What do you do to over? What do you do with that then? When you when you recognize yeah. that feeling coming up, what what yeah. does what does Dan do? I have I have two practices. One is in the moment. One is more the rhythm that helps me recalibrate. Um, the 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 rhythm that helps me recalibrate is every Monday morning. Um, I've been doing this for about I think I'm on 17 years now. Um, I ask three questions of myself every Monday in my journal. I actually have the journal right here. Oh, perfect. Um, I ask these three questions that are really custom to my own fears but the first one is what do you where do you feel inadequate where do you feel anger and where do you feel fear um i answer those three questions every monday morning it only takes me about 15 minutes i i in every monday it's it's like seeing myself in the mirror so many of these things just live covertly and just kind of live um in 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 we don't name them and we don't see them and so they end up having mastery over us um so i ask those three questions and then i meditate on who i am and the father son spirit i bring those three things so inadequacy i feel inadequate for the meeting coming this meeting coming up that uh i i don't think i have brilliant answers for i don't feel like i know how to be um sharp on the spot i'm just saying that's what monday morning's inadequacy was for me and i had to bring that to god and say help me be still in this you know i have to work through those questions and bring them into prayer in that moment so that helps me some recalibrate recenter I think that's a practice that Jesus um, showed us. And then in the moment when I'm feeling uh, attack or avoid, um, I have been um, for the last couple of years asking this question, why am I feeling scarcity? So I think it's important to have better self-talk. And But in order to do that, you actually have to find – maybe a slogan may not be the best word, but your phrasing, your word – your sacramental um, sentence that you can use to wake you up out of the amygdala at that moment. And so if it if you don't really have anything like that, it really stays abstract and esoteric, and it's hard to really recognize that you're in it. So when that person asks me for a cup of coffee, I'm, I have to be still and say, why am I feeling scarcity? And it's at that moment that I can begin to unpack that and realize that, I'm not as in as much danger as I thought I was in. I don't need to move towards self-protection. That's that's one of the practices. The second practice is, is asking that. That's my question. Why am I feeling scarcity? That's, Sometimes it's just because I'm tired. Other times it's because this person I feel has communicated something passive-aggressively. Whatever, you know. No, it's really good. There's a lot of, I mean... There's a lot of stuff in there. I would encourage people to go go back and listen to that and take some sure. notes because I think there's ways to extrapolate that for your own circumstance where, yeah. to me, some of the main themes are self-awareness. Yeah. You mentioned naming, right? That we're taking yeah. Satan, want, you know, right? Evil, however you want to define that, takes 
takes things and puts it under the surface so that it's unconsciously exactly. acting. And yes. the first thing we can do, I mean, this is the first step in yes. AA, right? I yeah. am name and I'm an yeah. alcoholic. You're naming what has That's been right. operating under the surface. And so for you, it's like, let me, let me name this fear right now. And then yeah. I love that you're rerouting then your identity in mm. God. So I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, brilliant stuff there, and I think journaling is so good for that because you can you can look back on what was my fear a week ago, how did I oh, talk yeah. to that, and then with your phrase, kind of a mantra esque type thing. And I know that word might scare some people, but it's basically the idea of why do we sing worship songs? Why do we read scripture a lot? Well, sure. because it sinks in so we can remember yeah. that. So I think yeah. that's uh, that's really, really good. And I know in mm. the book you talk about a, a ton of different things you can do around curiosity, the importance of the table, disruption, yes. forgiveness. Right. Um, there's yeah, yeah. there's some really, really good stuff there. And and I so I would encourage people to go read all of that. You know, we can't cover that all here, but I guess what I would yeah. say is for an average person then who, you know, might be a, a a working mom, right? Who wakes up with the kids at six in the morning, or it could or a dad, right? You know, gets the kids ready, takes them to school, works till five, comes home, yes. takes care of them till eight or nine, and then just goes to bed. You know, and it's like, yes. oh man, where do I have room to to invite my neighbor over for a meal? Where do I do some of these yeah. things? What would you say, or 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 a, a man who's like, man, you know, in order to make, you know ends meet, I'm working four jobs, or I'm traveling a lot. Whatever. And, and of course, men and women, you can swap those roles, right? But sure. people who just yeah. feel like, I have so much going on, where do I fit in some of these practices? Yeah, that's a that's a really um, nuanced question. Um, and it's, it's certainly different for everyone. But I think all of us just in the just in the humdrum of our life, have someone that we're polarized against we we if we don't start with the first step of naming who that is or what that is i don't think any practice is is relevant so first of it is coming into the light and acknowledging and being explicit about that and i think this is why jesus this is why the crescendo of what jesus is saying is so powerful because his, his disciples up to this point, when Jesus says, love your enemies, actually think God is for hating your enemies. <laughs> and that's why he corrects them and says, you've heard it said, but now I say. So there's, there's, we've heard it said, it's very normal to hate our enemies. And when I say enemy, it could, it could be your husband. It could be your coworker. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be your son or daughter. You have to start naming where you feel polarized, where you feel that that um, either or. Um, the definition I use for polarization is, is polarization takes something that we have in common, emphasizes our differences, turns our differences into disgust, and then turns our disgust into blatant hatred. And I've been using that for a long time, and it came out in marriage counseling. Mm. <laughs> this happens in the most intimate relationships that the, that this progression begins. And so this is the, just the long-winded way of saying, first ask, who am I polarized against? And the second is, God, and this is following through on Jesus' scripture, how do I begin to pray for them and extend mental um, blessing towards them? 
so that my heart can actually be softened towards maybe the third step, which is actually physically have table fellowship with them or to move towards compassionate curiosity or forgiveness, all those other practices in the book. But it starts with first naming. Yeah, I like that. It's a internal work. And yeah. and what I love about that too is, uh, and this is something that I know I, we all do this, um, but I see it a lot in, I lead Bible studies, right? In small mm. groups as a pastor or even discussions for Rua space. And it is so easy to go to, hey, this scripture is talking about this and this is a problem. And here's where I see it in the youth of today, or here's right. where I see it in coworkers and and it's so hard to get the yes. conversation back to let's yes. not mention where we see it in anybody else. Right. Let's only talk about where we see it in ourselves, right? Yes. Like my own fear around not being good enough, right? Like I'm not enough. I don't, you know, I'm not smart enough or I'm not whatever, you know, that's, that's for me, my fear. And then being curious, not about why are they doing that? But why am I afraid of them? Why do I hate yes. them? That internal place. So I love that you start there because I think that's, yeah. and we can all do that in no matter yeah. what we're doing, right? Our commute to work, our, uh, yes. when we're eating, whatever we can do, we can sort of start yeah. that internal work. Yes, that's good. We, I mean, you're, you're just, you're double clicking on, uh, we're classic projectors. We pr constantly projecting rather than moving towards the personal. And, and I think that's why we're at we're at such a culture war and visceral visceral kind of antagonism is because nobody really wants to ask the question what am I afraid of? We're always looking at the other and saying their behavior is bad, and we can use scripture to even reinforce that. But it's not really <laughs> allowing space for the spirit to disrupt us and open us up to um, to really this powerful um, enemy love that's available to us. Yeah. And, and what I then love you do is you go to the next stage of uh, disruption. So I, I'm hoping you can yeah. talk just for a minute around um, creativity, because as yeah. you mentioned in, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about going an extra mile, right? Or turning mm. the other cheek. And it's easy to label that as almost like a giving up, but actually it's creative, and yeah. it's inviting something. So can you go a little into that? Because I think that invitational, sure. creative, disruptive piece is an invitation any of us can enter into. Yes. So the the for, uh, it's figuring out where to start here, but I, th I think it starts with understanding what our brains want. Our brains want a simple knee-jerk response. And that's our amygdala. It says attack or avoid. To move towards creativity is actually to move into the prefrontal cortex of our minds, which takes carefulness and slowness in contemplation. You don't come up with creativity just by um, burping it out. Um, you know, it's and so when you're faced with someone you hate or you're disgusted by or you disagree with, you have to start having self-awareness that you're automatically going to move towards uncreativity. You're going to be knee-jerk, attack or avoid. And when we feel we're in that place, the most uncreative thing to do is argue. And this is what is we're just being conditioned for in our society right now is to think that if we can come up with an argument, we can change their minds. Mm. If I can come up with a heaping, burning mound of facts for why they're wrong, they will finally be embarrassed and say, you're right, I'm wrong. 
And we know that doesn't work. I mean, how many of us have actually been in even in intimate relationships where our arguments just don't work? This gets back to neurology. Actually, arguments make people double down and they call it backfiring. It actually accomplishes the opposite of what we wanted to accomplish, which was transformation. Because our brains do not respond well to that that force of argument. It, our prefrontal cortex can be opened up with affection and empathy and kindness. Um, so uh, creativity, uh, to, to unlock creativity. So I, I give an example of this in, in my book, but there was a person that would really hurt me and she was really upset at me. Uh, there was a lot of gossip going around and we hadn't talked for about a month and I was ruminating on how to prove that I was right and she was wrong. I am not the person you're saying I am. So I wanted to live into my amygdala. And at, it's, at some moment, I, I think because of being in the space with the spirit, I realized this is not going to work. I'm actually going to reinforce the problem and we're going to be in even worse polarization with each other. And in creativity, I began to think, how can I open up her prefrontal cortex? I know this sounds nerdy, but I'm like, how can I help her realize I have empathy for her? Break that cycle. Yeah. Break it. Something's, yeah, this is creative disruption. So I made a gift basket. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the last part of the book and the conclusion is that I ended up, I know she loved cheese. I know she loved wine. This is not a dating relationship. This is a person in, in my life that we had an argument and I made her, I, I would custom made this expensive gift basket, which is ironic because I'm making something beautiful for someone I right now feel hate, hate some some level of hatred for, and I'm have my emotions are changing just by making the gift basket. So I went over to her house. I brought the gift basket over. I knocked on the door. She opens it up and she's like, "What are you doing here?" And she sees I have a gift basket, <laughs> and this already creatively disrupts hmm. what's happening. Something shifts. Um, part of her that was closed off, part of me that was closed off is now opening up. And I said, I just want to bring you this gift. Um, I don't know what I've done. I don't know what I've said. I don't know how I've hurt you. But I am sorry. I just I made this gift for you. That, that In the book, I call it affection. That affection disrupted and so most people don't move towards that act because they're thinking in these very binary categories of winning or losing. I call it false choices, right? It's we're in these false. And so creative disruption is actually slowing down to think of some creative way to open up the prefrontal cortex to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and it's and actually that gift basket idea came from talking about it with a with someone in my community and I said I just want to change this scenario but I don't know how and we brainstormed up some really silly crazy ideas and this is the one we went with and so sometimes you have to actually talk it out with another person not about not kvetching or trying to get someone on your side but actually saying hey I want to change this polarized dynamic what are some creative ways that I can you'd be amazed at what the holy spirit it brings into the picture that wasn't there accessible to you before. So Absolutely. You know, uh, Sun Tzu in his Art of War talks about not oh, at- yeah. not attacking a fortified position. <laughs> and, and, oh, well. and so when you were talking about that, that just reminded That's me of that. Really that good. when, you know, you don't attack someone by running at their wall. You know, you send in a spy, right? Or you, you find some creative way to get them to come out, you know. And of course... 
there we're talking about war, right? So we're not yeah. talking about actually defeating your enemy, but but there is a sense like you're talking about when you just throw facts at someone, you're attacking a fortified position. They're just going to entrench even deeper. Oh, that is good. Yeah. And so I love your idea of creatively finding a way that that where you and they are no longer an object, but a face and a yes. story and a real person yes. that you interact with a face and a real person very differently than the label when you're talking with them angrily with right someone on. else. Right. Um, yes. so I've, I have two more things that I'd like to ask you as we kind of get sure. toward the end here. One, and this one, I'll give you an example. So as to not put you too much on the spot, but what are maybe three questions people should ask themselves in this process? So like one, for example, in the book that you bring up is, can you see the image of God in blank, whether it be a feminist or a terrorist or a conservative or a, you know, fundamentalist, whatever it might be. Yeah. So, where where can you see the image of God in them? Do you have a few other questions that are helpful for getting to your internal place of fear, seeing the other different, coming up with a creative solution? Yeah. So uh, one has to do with a, the later chapter on that's called compassionate curiosity. One of the things that really um, sabotages our ability to unpack our fear is really our poor listening skills and how much rabid talking we do, even to ourselves and to others. We don't know how to cultivate curiosity. And so in the book, I, I, I have like these four steps of curiosity. Um, and I, I, love, I love marrying compassionate with that because it's not just trying to find out something. Um, it's actually trying to get at compassion is co and passion together. Co means both. Passion means we know the passion of the Christ is the suffering of Christ. So compassionate curiosity is actually the work, the slow work of being curious about someone else's suffering. Mm. Um, knowing that even though there's someone that you don't like, they're suffering probably in some way that you're not aware of. And they're probably, you're both suffering. Of course. Um, and so the the beginning of like this pathway of moving out of fear is actually cultivating um, a curious posture with – well, we've talked about curiosity with your own self, but actually curiosity with others. And mm. our – the, our culture war that we're in, and and because we're so exposed to you know 24/7 to sound bites and to to images about who we should hate and who we should be afraid of, you should hate anti-vaxxers, you should hate progressives, you should hate, you know, that we actually are not curious any longer about each other because we think we already know. We're already convinced. I already know everything about you. I've read about you. I know the the. You know, I know the stereotype about you. And so really Jesus followers have to be countercultural to actually slow down and begin to cultivate some curiosity. You're going to find yourself, if you do that, you're going to find yourself opening up suffering that you were never privy to. This is why Jesus is is consistently has these moments of sacred connection with people and their suffering because he is curious. You know, at one point he's moving along the path with his disciples, trying to get someplace. Someone touches the hem of his garment, and he says, "Hey, who touched me?" The disciples are like, "What do you mean? We're in a crowd. We got to keep going, right?" They're not curious. They have some place to get. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus is curious about suffering, about touch, about people, and so we have to slow down to 
really find God in this in this place of each other's pain. I love it. Talk, uh, ask more questions than stating yes. the answers. That's yes. yeah, that's beautiful. So yeah. then, what is maybe one sentence you would leave people with? If you could, if you could sum up, you know, in one or two sentences, what would you challenge or encourage yeah. or mix? I, I mean, what's helped me is uh, is a phrase that love and fear are at war. That's helped me. That phrase has helped me a lot because it is when I tune into the fact that all day, every day, my own soul, the world around me, the the, the, the news that's being uh, scrolling across my feed is either calling me to submit and to surrender to fear or it's drawing me into deeper love. This, and I really think that's what is happening in the text. It's showing us, exposing the supernatural, is that this is the that's what's happening in the world. This is a war between love and fear, the war between God and the enemy, and it's it's in the seat of every soul. So when you begin to um, own that phrase or tune into that war, you start to see things you've never seen before. It's it's really it's really fun and and, and nutty. Um, so that's what I would leave people with: is uh, there is a war between love and fear, love and fear at war. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Where can people find you? Where would be the <laughs> well, best they, place they, you would point them? Um, they can come out on my front porch. I'll put um, your address in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not do that. Um, yeah, I've had some problems with that stuff. <laughs> no, I'm so, kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, my, I mean, I, there's a, the website that is launched, uh, loveoverfearproject.com is loaded with all kinds of fun things to help equip you with love and fear. And then my tw- Twitter handle is Dan White Jr. Um, you know, those are two places that I'm I'm hanging out. So Love it. Thanks again, Dan. This was great. Really appreciate you coming oh, on. Yeah, it was a joy. It was fun. Great questions. Thank you. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before we go, I just wanted to say thank you again for joining us for this interview episode with Dan White. I pray that you are blessed and encouraged, and we're going to look into putting some of those practices onto our blog so that you can further engage these ways Dan taught us to look at our own fear and allow love to triumph. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, I would ask you, please drop us a review on iTunes, some stars, a comment. Those definitely mean a lot to us. And check out some of the other podcasts episodes that we've released. We've done some really cool explorations of spiritual disciplines, some Bible studies, and had interviews with people like Dale Cooper, Father Albert Hass, Cindy Parker, Richard Lewis, Dwight Friesen, and more. You can also join us on Facebook, where every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central, we do Lectio Divina Live. So it's time of silence, prayer, scripture, discussion, and more. So until next time, brothers and sisters, grace and peace be with you.